Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Mike, and I welcome you back once again. As always, Dave and I thank you for joining us and hope that your modeling mojo has kept you at the bench since the last episode. Late summer activities and the Labor Day holiday have taken a toll on Dave and I recently, but we hope to get back into it, the thick of it shortly. So please hang around for our special segment as Dave and I will get into the alleged death of the hobby. So let's get on to episode 20 of Plastic Model Mojo. We're back again, Dave, for episode 20. Do you believe it? Yeah, hard to believe. 20 in the can. Or will be when we're done with this one. So uh, how are you doing tonight, Mike? Well, I'm doing pretty good, all things considered. Uh, Made it through the Labor Day holiday. Didn't get a whole lot done other than uh, household stuff. But yeah, uh, wasn't so bad. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. So uh, did you get a little modeling fluid to, to help you tonight? I, I sure did. I'm back to the bullet. Oh, returning back home. Returning home. Going to do my favorite for a while. It never fails me. But it's got me thinking about my my next venture into the unknown. So I got to think about what I may pick up once this bottle's gone. Are you thinking of sticking with a, a bourbon? Oh, yeah. It'll be a bourbon, but it's going to be something I've never had before. So Okay. Okay. For full effect. Sounds good. What about you? Well, um, you might remember back in one of our early episodes, uh, kind of in honor of our Australian friends, I had said that I had gone out looking for an Australian beer to have for the uh, for the modeling fluid segment, but I couldn't even find Foster's. Uh, well, I was in the grocery store the other day, and uh, lo and behold, there was Foster's, and so I picked up an oil can of Foster's and uh, give it a shot here. Well, they're going to give you a shot too. Let me take a sip of it. Well, good day, Mike. How are you doing? And no, I won't do an Australian accent through the whole show. That was it. And that was pretty bad. I think that was pretty bad, but uh, they'll be the judge of your beer and your accent. And I, I predict it won't be favorable top to bottom. I've got got to be honest. Now, keep in mind, I'm drinking the uh, Foster's green can, which is the premium ale, as opposed to the blue can, which is the lager. It's not the worst thing I've ever drunk, uh, because Lord knows I've drunk Sterling and Fall City and PBR and uh, Natty Bow. I wouldn't classify it in my top 10 beers. But it's going to get it's going to get me through the episode. If nothing else, it will make up in quantity what it lacks in quality. Well, maybe uh, Davey and or Julian or give give us a uh, a little bit of a directive on what to go look for. It sounds like a good idea. Maybe they will. Well, the mailbag is uh, in pretty good shape. Good. Let's see what we got. All right. Got several repeats, but they've got some new stuff. Joel Sherwood from Irwin, Tennessee. He asked if he planned on speaking about the AK Interactive boondoggle. <laughs> I don't think we can avoid it. No, well, we could. We could just not. I mean, so it's it's a it's a week's it's a week stale now. So yeah, 
Yeah. Because I have something to say. And, and uh, Well, you go first. I think that was probably the most ill-conceived marketing cl- campaign. Marketing ploy, actually. I would even call it a ploy because it was pretty over the top. Um, to think that you could take something as nuanced as they were kind of saying it was and bridge an infinite number of languages and keep that point intact that they were trying to make and have that go over well was so far beyond wishful thinking. It wasn't, wasn't funny. I mean, it was just, that was just really, really a bad idea. Yeah, I agree. And then they compounded it by their first apology being a, we're sorry if you were offended by the good thing we were trying to do, which just made it even worse. We're sorry, but. Yeah, we're sorry, but. Just to give the listeners a a behind-the-scenes look uh, here, uh, Mike and I both get up early, go to work early, so a lot of times in the morning we're texting back and forth about different things. And when the the day this thing dropped, Mike texts me right about 8 o'clock in the morning, you've got to go see (laughs) You need to go take a look at this. And so I went immediately to AK's website and clicked on the the banner, which was supposed to activate the video, and they had already locked it private so that the video was no longer running uh, on their website in the banner, the advertising video, which was unbelievably poorly done or poorly conceived. So I then ran to their YouTube channel where it was still up and I clicked on it, started to watch it. I think I was 15 seconds into it when I texted Mike, holy, and then a word that we're not going to use on this podcast. But it just, Mike said to me later something that is absolutely true. I would love to have been in the meeting where this thing was previewed and everybody went, yeah, that's a great idea. That's going to go over well. Because I just can't imagine. <laughs> I, I literally cannot imagine showing that to more than three people in a room and not having one of them say, uh, guys, do we want to stop and think about this for, the, for a minute? Because it, it, it was... If you if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. Mike, what do you think was the most offensive part of it? I mean, there there are like 20 different things to criticize. What do you think was the most the most wrong? That's a good question. I, the, the video for sure, because it, let me dance around here a little bit. <laughs> the video for sure, just because not so much of the footage they showed. Not that that was not terrible, but it was in some context, it was historical record, but I'm not sure in their context it was. Right. Uh, the fact that that was wrapped around a marketing campaign. Yes. I, I think for, I think for me that that, that may have been it, but the, the first attempt at an apology, which I don't know what their intent was, but it came across as we're right, you're wrong, or everybody just doesn't get it. While the uh, the negative comments versus the the people coming to their defense were were literally like two or three hundred to one on Facebook, mm-hmm. I mean, so it was it was pretty much cut cut and dry, right? Yeah, I, I don't know the whole B movie horror flick way that that video was put together, having a bulldozer shoving corpses into mass grave to sell something. 
to claim some high road about that. And again, try to bridge all these languages. If you're trying to portray this as some kind of art, the, the modeling side of it, and I'm not, I don't know that even want to talk about that. Right. If you're going to take this high road approach to it, man, the, the, the book and the content would have done much better. I think standing on its own yes. instead of putting, putting this Bush league video out, it was really pretty bad. No, I, I think if they had released the book, there might have been some controversy about it. Because, I mean, the more the more difficult the subject you're dealing with, the more delicacy you have to have. Uh, so this is the one of the most delicate subjects. And so, therefore, it required just super finesse. If they had just released the book, there may have been some controversy about it. Some people might have found it interesting. Some people might not have been some debate over, but the idea of using some of the most disturbing and horrific images captured on actual historical images captured on film as part of an advertisement to sell something, no matter what your intent behind it, you were, you were selling something. And that, that just, it did not, it was, you know, I'd like to try and give everybody the benefit of a doubt and, you know, hey, this, it was a terrible mistake. And oh, that was bad. It was just bad all the way around. Well, the, 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 the further conversation is, you know, what happens to AK after this and what us, what we modelers do as individuals or distributors or, or whatnot periodicals having selling advertising you know they're gonna they'll they're gonna recover from this it's, it's gonna be okay for them probably yeah uh they finally did publish a, a respectable apology in my opinion oh yeah it took them three four days to do it but they finally did. well it, it it took them three or four days but uh not to go too far down the defense of it the defense of it road um they weren't going to say anything until the dog piling stopped until they got a little, till they could come up for air. Right. They weren't going to say, they weren't going to say anything. And I, I understand that, but you know, it did take several days, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. No, I agree. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the long-term fallout is. Moving on. Ian McCauley in Ottawa, Canada, our good buddy in Ottawa, the hotbed of Canadian modeling. That's Right. Uh, he's, he's buddies with our, our guest from last week, uh, Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he helped set that up. So our thanks to Ian for that. But uh, he told me he's going to write in on, on our regular listener mail channel and offer a couple of things. And those things are based on our comments last time regarding aftermarket. We, we talked about where to buy and what, what to buy, et cetera. He wanted, to, he wanted to bring up RB barrels as a good value for the money. Mm-hmm. Um, they're one of the more prolific aftermarket armor, armor barrel makers, one thirty fifth scale turned aluminum and brass, usually with the muzzle brake included. And I, I agree. They're, they're not that expensive either. They're, they're real, actually, they're fairly affordable for what they are. And he recommends those as a, as a, uh, aftermarket accessory that's worthwhile. And in addition, he talks about re- resin. Most of his resin is, uh, conversions and you know conversions are making something a little bit or a lot different than what's out there uh, on the open market now for armor it's 
it's gotten a lot less than it used to be just because there's so many flipping kits, which kind of will segue into our special segment tonight. But, Absolutely. Um, he, he says it's good for the mojo to make something a little bit different. And these resin conversions are kind of worthwhile for that too. So I kind of, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that, you know, doing something that's out of the ordinary can get the juices flowing. Uh, next is Jim Unger and he's written in before. And I went back and dug out his email because, uh, he, he did mention this before and I failed to mention it on our podcast. He, he wanted to mention a model car podcast out of Canada called model car podcast hosted by Justin, John, and Pat. Uh, I have not checked it out simply because car modeling is not something I've, I've, uh, pursued yet though. I've got a kit. I'm kind of looking for a deal on <laughs> may that, that, that may, uh, slide me that way for, for a little bit anyway, for a fun build for a out of box or out of a comfort zone kind of build, but, uh, I'll have to check that out. Model car podcast. Okay. So we appreciate, appreciate that. Uh, Rob Perlman again from Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm going to defer this one to you, Dave. All right. How do you align landing gear and wings, etc.? Uh, how how much how much time do you have? High level, high level. I've got yeah, that's right. I've got three major comments on this. One which will partly be discussed in our uh, special segment tonight, but newer kits. More modern kits, kits released in the last 15 years because the engineering is so much better. Um, alignment has positive alignment is now being taken into account by the manufacturers, and many of them are making uh, the way the gear made into the gear well uh, a positive alignment fit so that basically. You almost can't mess that up. I'm an armor guy. Yeah, <laughs> same same thing goes with the mo- more modern kits for the alignment on the uh, elevators and the or the elevators and the wings. Uh, just simply, the fit is so much better, so you have fewer alignment problems on newer kits. Uh, that being said, you you always have to check alignment and. Uh, in addition to building better kits because or newer kits because they have the align many of the alignment problems already solved, um, there are uh, modeling jigs that can help with alignment. Uh, our friend at uh, UMM USA um, has several different types of jigs that. Uh, are sold that uh, help aircraft with getting the wings aligned correctly and assisting you in getting the uh, landing gear aligned. They have them for both monoplanes and they have special ones for biplanes for, as you can imagine, that kind of alignment just magnifies your problems incredibly. And then finally, when all else fails, the, the basic engineering of a good flat table, a level to confirm that it's flat, and a nice surface like a sheet of glass or a sheet of marble that you can sit the model on and you can use a modeling ruler to check the wingtip heights and that you can rotate around to check that the gear is aligned not only from the front, from a side view as well. Uh, the Mark I eyeball is the thing that catches misalignments um, more than anything, and 
by using one of those little modeling rulers to check that stuff, you'll catch stuff that that your eye knows is there, but you didn't perceive exactly what was wrong until you measured it. So that and a lot of practice and, uh, you know, one, one or two mistakes. We all make them. So, so Rob, if, if you want a little more detail on anything, uh, just shoot us an email at plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com and I'll probably send that on to Dave. I think I, you, I think you did. And I think I actually emailed him a lot of what I just said. <laughs> okay. If, if not, you'll, you'll get to. Yes. Uh, next is Cameron Corliss from Salt Lake City, Utah. And Cameron has a YouTube channel called Wasatch Modeler, and he's got about 30 videos posted out there. He asked us what makes a great YouTube channel because we, a couple of times we've commented on this. We had a whole section on uh, worldwide wealth of information that, that dealt with YouTube, YouTube channels to a large degree. And, and then, gosh, we've got 20 episodes now. I can't remember the contents you know, by the exact <laughs> number of the episode anymore, but uh, I think we've addressed it once before Yeah, in, in some context, but I, I don't remember what it is. I, uh, I, I meant to answer him by email, but I, I failed to do that just because of all the, the time crunch we've had since he actually emailed me. So I got a couple of things and then I'm probably going to think about it a little more and try to get back with you, Cameron. But what I like is the, the 20 to 25 minute ish uh, kind of duration with a very specific and succinct bit of content where if, if it's a, a specific technique or a specific subject, well, if it's a technique, create a video just for that technique outside of the context of the subject you happen to be modeling. Uh, that way, when you use that technique on a particular model that you're featuring a build in one of your videos, uh, you don't have to go through that again, and you can just reference back to that video, and the the viewers can go watch it. Um, this is something that uh, Night Shift does a lot. Yes, he does. And it 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 helps him keep his videos very compact, yet very very informative, without having to 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 reinvent uh, the wheel as far as describing what he's doing every single time with every single model he's building. He'll just reference back to a specific video where he tackles that, that particular technique in a, in a 20, 25, 30 minute segment on its own. Uh, it might be for a particular subject, but he goes into it in a great detail there. Uh, and he doesn't do it again. He just says what he's doing with a minimal de- detail and then references back to the, that pr- prior video along that line. I think f- something we do for this podcast that, Maybe you do. I don't know if you do or not, Cameron. I wouldn't say we script the podcast because we really don't. But we we put put out an I put it on an outline several days ahead of time just so we can collect our thoughts about what we want to talk about uh, and make sure we don't miss any key points. And I think that helps keep things flowing during the during the recording session, uh, and you don't get bogged down with uh, trying to fill fill gaps with stuff you haven't prepared for ahead of time. What do you think, Dave? Well, I, I think that all of that is true. In addition, I think that I, I agree with you completely. The 20 to 25 minute video length is the right time, right amount of time, uh, among other things, for keeping people's attention as well. Um, production values is an area that really pays off. Go back and look at Night Shift or Plasma or you know, some of the more well-known YouTube channels, take a look at them. The production values are really, really good 
on the, on those videos. And the, no matter how good a modeler you are, and no matter how well you present, which is, by the way, another thing you need to to make sure that you practice on. And, and the advantage of video is, of course, you can shoot as many takes as you need to to get it right. But produ- no matter how good a modeler you are, if your production values are bad, where we're not close enough to see what you're doing, the lighting isn't right, so you can't you can't perceive the technique that you're illustrating, then there's no value to it. And people, people will drift away no matter how good your, your ultimate finished product is. So take a look at your production values and be just absolutely rigorous in self-criticism, in going back and re-editing and practicing and and reshooting it to get it right, because all that's going to pay off in the end. I think a lot of people look at uh, Uncle Night Shift videos and think that those things just happen in one take, and he does it all in in you know thirty minutes or whatever. But I've I've got a little experience in that area, and I can tell you from looking at his, at what he's doing, he is putting huge amounts of time into each one of those 20 to 25 minute video. Take a look at night shift. Uh, that's probably the gold standard for me. I agree. If you want to know what makes a, a good YouTube video, that's it. Yep. I agree. Owen Dawson from uh, North Wales in the United Kingdom. Got two sides of a coin here. You're, you're on the upside, by the way. Okay. That's good. Uh, he agrees with your sentiment regarding the Arma hurricanes. Great. He picked one up. And is enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet kit. That hits close to the heart there for you, Dave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Now, he calls me out regarding the Hobby Boss TriStar figures. Uh, In fact, he says, I poured an Olympic pool size worth of cold water on uh, the Hobby Boss former TriStar figures. And he sent some pics of his under construction. And what he showed me were good, but they were TriStar's uh, Africa Corps tank crew set. And they look pretty good. I got to admit. Mm-hmm. Now, I base my comments on two sets that I have. One TriStar Soviet tank crew, which I know a little bit about. Right. And then a set called German Infantry Barrage Wall. And I will contend that these two sets are not very good, <laughs> in my opinion. My opinion. Yeah. Keep that in mind. I encourage everyone to go take what I said. Look for yourself and make your own judgment. The Soviet tank crew set and the German infantry barrage wall set. Uh, those are, those are store mannequins. I don't <laughs> like them. Uh, now the Africa, the Africa core set that he shows, uh, you know, maybe I need to go back and look at that again. I, I'll admit I'm probably wrong about those because they, they did look pretty good. So, uh, Owen, thank you for, uh, giving me a little more, uh, reason to go look at those again because i like i like figure sets i don't build a lot of figures (laughs) i've got a lot of figure sets tristar did have some sets that i thought before based on these other two i just mentioned were a good idea as far as figure sets go but i never considered them because of my my prior experience so maybe maybe the lesson is to never give up a hope (laughs) well do you know do you know just as a question the order that TriStar released those figure sets in, because I'm wondering if TriStar got better over time 
and the two sets that you have, you're talk, looking at or basing your your consideration on were early sets, and the Africa Core may be toward the end, because I know a lot of model companies that do that. That you know they start out and their stuff's not very good, but it evolves over time. That is absolutely true. The I want to say the Soviet tank crew set was the first figure set they ever issued. If my memory is correct, that that's a true statement. Mm-hmm. Uh, this German infant, infantry barrage wall set wasn't too far along after that. So yes, they are both early sets. So it's a it's a first impressions kind of deal, right? Yeah. Well, Owen, if you know when the where in the order the Africa Corps figures fell, and if they were a l- much later production. Write in and let us know, because I'd like to. I'd like to know a little more about that. Well, I would too, and I'll I'll shut my mouth about uh, dumping cold water on <laughs> TriStar and Omni Boss. All right, Stephen Lee. We've heard from Stephen before. Now I want to mention Stephen's. Uh, he contacted us uh, through the Facebook message message format. <laughs> this was fun. He sent us the box art for uh, three Fo- three Floyd's Brewery Barbarian Haze uh, India Pale Ale and. This is mm-hmm. interesting because the the box art for the six pack on uh, for that particular beer is a spoof of Tamiya's box art, and it's awesome. I mean, it is it is spot on for a send up. It is. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, I, I just want to say that I've reached out to Three Floyd's. Uh, I didn't get on it as fast as I'd hoped to. I just sent that very recently. In fact tonight the same night we're recording this podcast uh if if three floyds comes back with something interesting i'll I'll let everybody know as to why they chose that for the box art for that beer but given given our modeling fluid intro segment and this box art coming back as a parody of a a plastic model kit box i'm really hoping there's something there that's that's a a story worth telling whoever whoever does their artwork and design clearly at some point has been a modeler because i mean this as listeners know we mike turned me on to gumball head from three floyds and then over the episodes we've had several three floyds beers uh featured totally unaware and at least at the time that this barbarian haze was either existing already or coming out or whatever but the box art is, or the the packaging is a pure one hundred percent spot on spoof of a Tamiya armor kit box top, and it's awesome. And since it's our one of our favorite breweries anyway, that made it all the sweeter. Well, that's the mailbag. Well, good. We had a lot of good, uh, a lot of good uh, listener input there. Well, s- send us more, folks. We love it. Plastic yeah. Model Mojo, one word. Absolutely. Plastic Model Mojo at g- gmail.com. Absolutely. Or you can send send, send us a fake, uh, fake, fake book. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. F- Facebook Messenger. We, we do that too. Now, this is the time on the podcast where I ask you at the end of the podcast, if you enjoy these podcasts, one of the ways you can pay Mike and I back for the efforts we put into it is by going to whatever podcasting app, Apple, Apple, iTunes, whatever, Podcast Addict, uh, Stitcher, whatever you listen on, and go in and rate the rate the podcast, give it five stars. 
it helps drive up the visibility of it, and, and, and we want more people to listen. Speaking of that, one of the big ways any podcast grows is by word of mouth. Uh, we modelers all interact with other modelers all the time. If you enjoy these podcasts, do us a favor. Tell one of your modeling friends. Get them to listen to an episode. Maybe it's something that they, too, will enjoy, and that'll help our our viewership or listenership grow. Uh, finally, uh, if you're not a member of IPMS USA's national organization, please consider becoming one. I know several of the listeners have joined, and I appreciate that. Uh, IPMS USA is a great organization, puts out a good magazine, uh, provides a lot of the framework by which all of the local clubs exist and put on their local contests. Uh, And Lord knows, I don't know about you, but I miss all of the contests. This COVID thing, uh, it killed the entire contest season. I didn't realize how much I missed them till they're gone. So if you would, please join IPMS USA, or if you're a listener overseas, please join your national IPMS organization and uh, tell them David sent you. I appreciate it. In addition to uh, everything Dave just mentioned, we'd also like to plug our fellow podcast because our mutual support has been been a big help for all of us, I hope, but certainly for us. On the Bench with Dave, Ian, and Julian is up to episode 92, so that 100 is creeping closer and closer. They're talking tools with Will Pattison in their latest episode, and uh, Will Pattison's always a great guest. Check it out. Scale Model Podcast, episode 54 with Stuart and his new co-host, Jeff Halen. But Stuart, or excuse me, Anthony is still doing the interviews, which is the uh, topic for this episode 54. They're finishing up their Airbrush Whisperer interview, so... Check that out as well. And uh, Plastic Posse Podcast is episode two with Scott, TJ, and Doug. Now you have to double down on David Goldfinch if you listen to this one, but uh, I recommend it. Dave's a good guest. They're talking paint. So check that out as well. Plastic Posse Podcast, episode two. So those guys are off to a good start. I'm I'm curious uh, to to see what they do going forward. Absolutely. Well, Dave, countdown to Vegas once again. Do we have some news about Vegas? We have a little bit of news. We do. At the time of this recording, which is uh, about 9 p.m. on uh, the 9th of September, we are 343 days away from the IPMS National Convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. Got an update email from Bob Provado. They are close to breaking the attendance record for room nights booked as the metric. Orlando, Florida had... 3,135 room nights booked. Las Vegas is at 2,600 plus currently, which is above the next closest, which I, I can't remember. Columbia. Columbus. 2016. Oh, Columbia. South, Columbia, South Carolina. Or the former second place was uh, Columbia, South Carolina at 2,250. So they're, they're ahead of Columbia, South Carolina. Well, that's so, fantastic. They're, they're, you know, with a... Still almost a year to go. They're in good shape to to beat that Orlando record. Yeah. Col- Columbia is my birth birth city, by the way. We won't hold that against Columbia. Big vendors now include uh, Edward from Europe, Czech Republic, I think. Yes. Grex Airbrush from the United States. 
Zukimura from Japan, which is a perennial uh, IPMS national attendee. Yeah. Uh, Model Rectifier Corporation or MRC and Sprue Brothers. So those are some of the larger, larger vendors, vendor area table holders. And currently they're 70% sold out on vendor tables. That's good. That's a darn good that, pace a year out. That is good. So I'll go ahead and say this is not a done deal yet. It's a done deal, folks. I'm going to make him go. Dave and I both have our room reservations made. Yep. We have secured a table for Plastic Model Mojo in the vendor room, and we hope to do some on-site recording for the duration of the uh, show. So a lot of water's got to flow into the bridge in the right direction, but uh, we've at least staked our claim. We'll get you there. So hopefully this works out, but that's that's the intent. So the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I can't wait for it. Well, that is the Countdown to Vegas update. I almost hate to bring this subject up, but what's your benchtop, modeling benchtop look like? It's moving forward, but not at the pace I would have hoped for. That's better than me. Maybe it is. The Zis 2, forget it. It's still in in display case. At least there's no dust on it. Uh, The E16 Still do not have the uh, fuselage halves married together yet. Nothing nothing on that front. Now, the Morris tractor with the Bofors, my little nostalgia build, has, has moved forward. I, I've I've done the, the pin washes on that, and it's looking pretty good. I, well, no, let me back up. Since last episode, I've, I've done the decals, which came out great. Absolutely came out great. Yeah, they did look good. I decaled those right over a satin finish. I did not gloss coat the model beforehand. Now I trimmed them pretty, pretty stinking tight to make that work, but, uh, work, it worked out really good. The decals looked really, really good. And now since then I've, I've, I sat and coated it again a second time. Uh, I did that because the, the, the luster of the decals and the luster of the satin finish on the, on the painted model were not the same. So I sat and coated it again a second time to kind of even that up, which will, which will help that look a lot better in the end. It'll protect it. It'll protect it as you, as you weather the decals too. Yes, it will. The first issue I faced was that, that tricolor roundel on the roof of the, uh, the canvas top was <laughs> pretty, pretty in your face as far as how, how it stood out against the rest of the model. So, what I what I did there to kind of to back that down a little bit was I took a to me a khaki drab I can't remember the number but uh, it's a dark olive kind of color mm-hmm. and I I mixed that like ninety percent thinner to me to me a lacquer thinner with ten percent paint so just barely any paint in it and I kind of fogged that over the uh, the decal and it that really took the took the sharpness off off the yellow and the red and the white. And since then, I've been applying the washes to the model. It's looking pretty good. I, I like the way it's turning out. So I'm uh, probably going to do a little, little bit of oil, oil paint highlighting again. Got the headlights to pick out with uh, maybe a little uh, light gray or um, I don't want to use like a silver. I, I think I want to use a off-white or light gray for the headlight lenses and yeah. then uh, ap- apply some uh, future floor polish to that. Did you see, see what Night Shift did in his last video? painting a head, head uh, a spotlight or headlamp like that. That's the exact technique he used. Okay, well, I'll have to check that out. 
So you definitely want to watch it because he did some really interesting stuff with it. Tell me, Mike, uh, if my memory fails me, um, does that kit that you're working on come with a windshield? Oh, damn you! <laughs> no, no, the, the Airfix kit does not come with window glazing at all. And I posted the Facebook page. I, I you know, I'll be honest. I kind of had my mind already made up. But I put it out there. Should I put the window glass in this thing or not? And of course, everybody came back. Yeah, go for it. So I played around. That that was the only modeling I got done over Labor Day weekend was to formulate a plan to put the window glazing in the windshield frame for that kit. And while I was on the phone with Scott Gentry of uh, Plastic Posse Podcast, I sat there and scratched around a little bit and uh, came up with a plan. And that plan will be to wedge a piece of, uh, well, it's a, it's a post-it note stiffened with some plastic sheeting put behind the windshield. And I trace the window openings with a, a drafting pencil. And I use the drafting pencil because I can get a lot sharper, sharper point with that versus right. like a, a, a wooden pencil or even a mechanical pencil. Right. Uh, a drafting pencil is just raw lead in a plastic holder and you sharpen it using a pencil pointer instead of a pencil sharpener. I won't get into the differences between the two, but there's there's no wood to cut away, essentially, right? You're, right. you're just sharpening a, a lead. But anyway, it lets you get in there really tight and trace the in, inside of the window opening. And then I take that and put some plastic clear styrene sheet up on top of that, cut just outside the line so it's a little bit bigger because the, the, the window openings in the Airfix kit are drafted to the outside, which means the... The outside edge of the window opening is bigger than the inside edge of the window opening. So if you if you kind of split the difference, you'll you'll get a window panel that'll drop in there but won't fall all the way through. Through. Gotcha. That's that's looking pretty good. So I think I got a plan for that. And I'll finish the weathering and then go back and and wrap that up and put some window glass in it. And probably gonna use some stretch sprue, some uh slices of stretch sprue to to make some rudimentary kind of windshield wipers. Because I think the only advantage to putting the windshield wi- the window glazing in it is that I can mask off uh, the wiper arcs with masking tape and and then matte finish the gla- the glazing and then yep. when you take the tape off you have the, that, that classic you know dusty windshield wipe clean kind of look with right. uh, with the with the window glazing so that's kind of what I want to do and I and you're right I think that will add immensely to the model I think that was a good move so that's it for me man. What about you? And don't talk about pool cleaning and floating around in your in your inner tube. You know, at least you might not have had a lot of progress. You at least did have positive movement. In the last two weeks, in some ways, I actually went backwards. I had negative modeling. Um, <laughs> I did a little bit on the... Uh, uh, breach piece of the M30, the, the field gun. I got a few parts on and it's, it's almost completely done. The, the main body part. Uh, then the gun shield was engineered by Tami- or trumpeter in the worst way possible. And the assembly instructions had you assemble it in the worst order possible um, and I wish I had sat and thought about things before I just blindly followed their instructions, which resulted in me with a gun shield with 
uh, a couple of scenes that were very prominent weren't that aren't there on the real thing. So I had to work and eliminate those, which took several tries. But then, uh, as you know, I bought resin wheels for the M30, and I had I had hit them with Mister Surfacer fifteen hundred black as my primer, and then you and I exchanged some uh, uh, texts during a couple of build sessions, and you clarified the using the thinner line circle cutter to make uh, hub masks. Your your formula and your solutions worked great, and so I. Did some painting, some uh, painting of the hubs, and then masked them, and then painted the uh, wheel tire or the the actual tire itself, and then took the masks off, only to find that. And I have never experienced this before in my life with with Mister Surfacer fifteen hundred. The stuff just comes off of this these resin wheels now. I will admit I did not wash the re- I did not wash the resin wheels before I hit them with the Mister Surfacer fifteen hundred. They did not feel like they had significant mold release agent or anything on them. I know one other person that since I had this happen, I've talked to, and they've been building a resin ship kit, and they used Mister Surfacer, and they had the same problem. So. It may be a feature of Mr. Surfacer itself, not sticking as well to resin, although I've used it on other resin pieces before and haven't had this happen. But in any case, so I found myself over the last week slowly, dejectedly stripping the paint off of these wheels. And while the paint doesn't stick to the wheels, it really it doesn't just come off with a rub of a finger. You actually have to work a little bit to get them cleaned back to their clean state. So I'm actually in many respects less far along than I was two weeks ago when we recorded our last podcast. So I had negative modeling and there's almost nothing that will suck the mojo out of your modeling worse than negative modeling, negative modeling progress. So well that's that's interesting because you're using Hussar wheels for that kit, right? Correct. Which is the same aftermarket maker that made the wheels for the Zist two and three that I'm using on my Zist two project. Right. Uh the only difference is I'm not using the thinner line I didn't use the thinner line cutter because I didn't have it yet, but right. I masked I masked those wheels with Tamiya tape. Yeah, and that's what I was using. And I didn't have that problem. Hmm. And I don't know that I washed those either. Yeah. Now yeah. the di- the difference is I used Tamiya rattle cam primer. Uh, that it may be that Mister Surfacer doesn't work as well as Tamiya rattle cam primer um, on on resin. I'll be honest with you, having told me that. Uh, I imagine I will drop by Brian's in the next day or so, and I will pick up some Tamiya Rattle Can Primer because I've gotten these wheels cleaned back off, and now I have to start the process again. And I'm, I'm going to try some. I'll try Tamiya Rattle Can and see if that makes a difference. Well, you know, if it doesn't make a difference, 
you're you're the only thing that's different. That yes, point. I know. I, thank you. I appre- I appre- I appreciate you pointing out to the entire world my total and complete lack of modeling skill, as if everybody didn't know it already. So now that now that you've stuck the knife in my back, uh, what broke your wallet these past two weeks? Oh, I've been pretty good. You know, I have too. I finally got all that stuff I ordered. From eBay, I got the, from Starfighter, Starfighter, right? Yes. Starfighter decals. Yep. Uh, but they make more than decals. Yes, they obviously. do resin sets uh, and they do some photo etch. So, so it's kind of funny. Um, I, I got the I got the uh, the resin cockpit upgrade for, you got to remind me. The uh, SOC3 Seagull. Yes, the Seagull. Uh, that, that all looked pretty good. I'm it happy is. with that. I ordered decals for the same model but apparently in my haste i ordered the wrong set uh-oh so, so i gotta order another set of decals oh i feel so bad for you uh, you should because now i have to buy it i have to buy another seagull kit yeah that's right i've got hey i've got one in the stash if you need it man literally that's that's all i've bought since we had this segment last time but but <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and, and delve into my future broken wallet. Uh-oh. Give us a preview. In in the latest fine scale modeler and in the latest IPMS journal, uh, Tamiya has a full page ad for a new set of scribing and engraving tool line. Yeah. Uh, they've got three, three uh, sheet metal templates for squares, ovals, and circles. And these are like a tenth of a millimeter thick, so they're really conformable. And they've got uh, a set of scribing heads, about a half dozen, ranging from a half a millimeter up to, well, let me go the other way, from a tenth of a millimeter up to to 0.5, a half a millimeter. And then in addition, there's a chisel blade, a flat chisel blade, and then a, a needle point for for uh, engraving. Yeah. And a couple of a couple of handles for these. Uh, a red one and a black one. So these have started. Sh- these have started showing up on uh, eBay. Mm-hmm. I got a question for you. Go for it. Have you looked at the price of those things? You you just took the wind out of my sails, Dave. <laughs> well, I apologize because I was stunned when you told me about them. I went and looked, and I was stunned. So the the price for a single scribing head. Sans handle, no handle. A single scribing head is on average about twenty to twenty-five dollars. Yeah. Is that and, right? Yeah, and we're talking well, there's some as high as thirty-one. And to, for the listeners, try and envision something the size of a sewing needle. Nah, that's bigger than that. Not much. I mean, yes, the 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 base is is obviously thicker around, but we're talking a very tiny piece of metal. So the the handles are about fifteen dollars a piece. Yeah, they're just not the bad. handle, right? Well, <laughs> if yeah. it came with a scribing head, it wouldn't <laughs> yeah. be bad. <laughs> yes, I, uh, concede, I'll concede but, that. But they don't. So, oh, this is going to cost me because. Well, let me back up. This warrants waiting for a r- review. Yes, absolutely not. Not not some rah rah fanboy out of box review. A substantive. I use this, and here's what happened. Review because if these work, 
if these work, I'm buying two handles and every head and all three of the templates. And it's going to be like $200. Yeah. Almost. Or, or you could throw yourself on the grenade for all of our listeners and get them all sight unseen and do, do a review and let us know whether you wasted $200 or not. Yeah, you'd like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that was my reaction too, is I want to see somebody get these things and truly put them through their paces to see. Because, I mean, to me, it makes quality stuff. They really do. And these things look good for that kind of money. I've got tons of scribers right now. And it needs to be a generational improvement for me to lay out those kinds of uh, dollars. So six, six is 150 bucks just for the scribers at $25 yep. a pop. Yep. With no handle. So you got to throw in another six, $16 for a handle. Wow. $166 to get all the scribers in a handle. Maybe Mr. Tamiya listens to this podcast and he'll send you a set free to review. Not after our skepticism. He's not going <laughs> to. Yeah, prob- probably not. We just probably <laughs> torched that one. <laughs> probably did. Oh, man. Uh, so that's that's what might break my wallet. What about you? Well, I, I too have been good in the last two. The, the upside of getting no modeling done because I have no time because it's summertime outside. And if I'm not cutting the grass or replacing a blown breaker in my uh, uh, electrical panel, I'm cleaning the pool or, or doing something else in relation to the pool. So the upside of no modeling time at the bench is that I haven't really had much time to spend money on modeling either. Uh, about the only thing that I've acquired since uh, since our last podcast was I got the um, AK Real Color set, paint set number seven, which is the World War II Soviet colors. And I used those when I was painting the wheel hubs on the uh, M30 before I had to strip it all off. And the paint works really well. And I got it courtesy of uh, the local hobby shop, Scale Reproduction. So spent a little money on that. And then the only other modeling expenditure I've made is uh, you, you forced me somehow to go on eBay. And I was looking around and I found the Trumpeter Chinese J20 72nd scale stealth fighter kit. And uh, realized I did not have one in the stash, so I found one on eBay from a seller in somewhere in Asia. So the price was really good, so I bought it. But the downside of doing any of those eBay purchases from uh, Asia, particularly right now during COVID, is that the shipping takes forever. And I'm probably not going to see that kit for another month or so, but I'm not in a rush. It's not like I have nothing to build. So <laughs> I can live with that. But all in all, I've been really good at the, as far as not breaking the wallet too hard. It's coming though. Yeah, it is. I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Our special segment tonight is about this alleged death of the hobby. 
<laughs> a recent uh, listener mail was uh, describing an incident where they had bought a particular modeling tool, a modeling jig, and they shared it with some of their modeling friends in their own community. And they kind of balked at the price tag on it. And they they uh, suggested that that was part of the reason for the death of the hobby. Um, what do you think about the hobby dying, Dave? I, I'm not convinced that uh, the hobby's even running a fever, much less dying. Uh, I've got... I've got a take so hot, you're going to need to get a set of oven mitts to handle it. As I've, as listeners know, I've been modeling, I've been back in modeling for close on to 40 years now. And I've heard the hobby is dying pretty much every couple of years, the entire 40 years I've been in the hobby. And there was only one time that I even thought it might be true. And that was the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, when computer computers and computer gaming got really, by leaps and bounds, so much better. So that the games themselves became weren't cartoonish, were getting toward almost photorealistic uh, as far as their graphics. Um, they were so they weren't just the simple Oregon Trail, Pac-Man, Oregon Trail, Mario Kart stuff. I, I, I was worried that one time in that period, because it did seem it coincided with the decline in the number of releases, uh, a couple of modeling companies, uh, accurate miniatures and, uh, classic airframes going out of business, uh, you know, uh, Airfix went through their rough, one of their rough patches then. So that was the only time I truly worried about that. But I kind of learned something from that. And it's that we can't see the future as clearly as we think we can. Mike, do you know what an ARL44 is? No. It is a, a tank that the French built after their country was liberated in 44, 45. And they built like 50 of these things. They weren't Panther tanks? No, no. They did, ha they did have some Panthers, but this was a homegrown French indig indigenous design. They only built like 50 of them. They never saw combat. They're, you know... In the, let's put it this way. They're so obscure, you had no idea what they were, what it was. But do you know what? There's a model kit of an ARL-44. Do you know why? Because there's nothing left to do. No. There's a video game, World of Tanks. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's and, true. And the ARL-44 is apparently very popular in that game. So popular, in fact, that some model company thought it was worth making a kit of that tank that is so obscure, you've never heard of it. So that's kind of one of these things where, yeah, they're video games. Are they a threat to the hobby that we pursue? Well, you might have thought so, but who would have ever foreseen that happening? Not me. Not me. That's 
That's a really good point. These things that are happening now that we may view as threats to our hobby may in fact spin off and actually, uh, you know, there's a whole series of, of World of Tanks branded tank models simply because that game is so popular. And far from killing the hobby, it may be adding to what is, of course, in my opinion, you've heard me say it a number of times, I think we're living in the golden age of modeling. This is the best time, I think, for modelers that we've ever seen. There's more tools, there's more products, uh, the, the products are better than they've ever been, uh, the selection is wider, uh, price-wise, while some of the prices can be eye-watering, when you really look at things compared to inflation and compared to other hobbies, it's pretty ex- inexpensive unless you buy to me ascribers for $200. Um, so, no, I, I, I've heard this time and time again over the last 40 years. I don't think, I don't think it's true. I don't think the hobby's dying. Um, in regard to the point that originally brought this up were, um, you know, the people were commenting on how expensive that, I think it was like a 30 or $40 jig. And yeah, that $30 tool. That kills the hobby. That ain't killing the hobby. Thirty or forty dollars is is nothing these days compared to a lot of other hobbies. I mean, a video game is sixty, eighty, hundred. Yeah. So no, I, I think our our hobby is real cheap. So how about you? What do you think? Well, it's to to go a little further with the the world of tanks it's interesting that uh, i can't remember who who is doing that it's 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 hilarious or or ravel or both maybe even i mm-hmm. don't know uh is doing the world of tanks branded kind of the kits that's kind of interesting because you're right it's it's like full circle this this was the excuse everybody said was you know oh everybody's everybody's playing video games now nobody's building models well, these companies have said, here, here, here's a model of the tank that's in your video game. You, you can't have it on your desk in the video game, but here's this kit. You can build it, and you've actually got a, a, a physical, touchable representation of what you're using in the video game. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of full circle. Another, now, I don't know the extent of it, but uh, at least f- people in America and maybe, maybe North America and other parts of the we- Western world, UK maybe, in Japan... There's been a lot of kits issued or reissued under this Girls and Panzers right. label, which is an anime uh, manga kind of topic, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe is that the same thing that that's selling kits in Japan? I guess. Yep. If not, if not the world over, but mostly in Japan, probably because this kind that's kind of a kind of a, a weird kind of take on things for for the Western world. But the the point being is that you've got this crossover from video games, video series, you know, movies, et cetera, and a manga, anime that's kind of perpetuating a desire to have uh, physical models of these things and, and to as an extension of of those interests, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Uh, another thing I would mention is that if you if you look at a model club, 
and look at the the age demographic in most model clubs, and it's it's skewed certainly, right? To I'll, I'll go low. I'll, I'll say thirty five and above, and it's it's probably it's probably worse than that. To be honest, at least in our club, it probably is. And, and worse, worse, I mean the 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 lowest age of the the bulk of the demographic is probably older than thirty five. Yeah. But what what people don't realize is, and this is a little snarky on my part, but um, every year the world gets a new crop of old guys. Yep. Right. Yep. So it's it's self perpetuating to a point, it's assuming you're getting interest. And now we've got this world of tanks and girls and panzers in, in Asia. But it, the, my point being is, they're coming to the hobby from maybe a different trajectory than, than what we came to it as, but you know, they're going to go on and be modelers probably some of them anyway, for, for a long time. And, you know, there's just a new crop of, there's new, a new crop of old guys every year. Um, you know, to, to, to go a little bit further with, with our club, uh, this is a personal, a personal observation from, of, of myself from the Military Modelers Club of Louisville is that uh, I was very, very active in the club for a long time, uh, from about 92 up to about 2004 when my first child was born. And after that, I, I kind of had to reel it back and I, I kept reeling, re- reeling it back more and more and more till I was, you know, I was a, I was a ghost as we say in the club, I show up every now and then everybody'd be glad to see me. But the, the point being that there are more and more faces in the club that I did not recognize because more people were joining. And of course they're all over the age spectrum and a lot of them were older, but, but still the, the 10 years or so that I was kind of on the peripheral of the club, a lot of people joined and our, our, you know, and all the old, all the old, old guard was still there for the most part. Yeah. And the the club was was continuing. It it wasn't. We certainly weren't going down in membership. I guess that's the the crux of it. If I had to, to no, boil it the, down. Yeah, our our membership's actually grown, and actually the people who have joined recently are actually the younger members. Yes. So, so you're right. We get, you get a new crop of younger old people every year and some of them drift their way into the hobby. Now that's, that's involvement. You you touched on it a little bit before, but back to what we have available to us as hobbyists, it's just incredible. Yeah. Not only, not, not only do we have subjects that we thought 10, 15 years ago, we would never see that we were going to be relegated to either converting scratch building or, or using a vacuform kit for, for an aircraft guy. Uh, so much of this stuff is now in injection molded plastic and not only as a single representation in the market, but you have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. Multiple what, do you, what do you think of that? Uh, it, it's amazing. I I'm in the last 10 years I've seen things in plastic that I never thought I would see in vacuform and they're an injection molded plastic from a major manufacturer. So, I mean, we do live in the golden age of modeling. But but 
Now, here, here, here's, here's a, here's an even hotter take. I do think there is something out there that may truly, actually be a threat to our hobby. Want to guess what it is? I can't fathom. I don't know. 3D printing. Not now. Not not currently. But three, four, five generations from now, when you'll be able to 3D print a model that is as good as anything you or I can produce, print it already in the camouflage colors and markings that it needs to be, probably the only thing you couldn't do to it is weather it in the 3D printer. But hell, who knows what down the road, what the technology would look like. But I certainly see at least one path forward where that becomes available. And some number of people who spend hours and hours hunched over a tape, a modeling table to get a model of a particular thing now have the ability to press a button and have it produced in six hours. And I'm not sure what effect that has on the hobby long-term. Yeah. I don't know either at that that, you know, you start talking about that and the, the thoughts start going through my head. That model will only be as good as the person who created it. Yeah. So it will st- still need, in some people's eyes, refinement. Yeah. So I don't know. It, you know, I was on one of, the, one of the Facebook pages this week and and somebody was asking how to, how to model a particular thing thing it, it was a it was the the protective shroud over the exhaust system of a particular french tank and it was a sheet metal f- thing with louvers formed into it and they're like how can i model this without 3d printing it and i asked could you please provide some context around your statement about with you know other than 3d printing it you know was it an issue of access to 3D printing? Was it an issue of uh, cost of 3D printing? And I even said, hell, you may be such an old school guy that you think it's a cop-out to do it that way. You know, that's that could be a reason too, right? Mm-hmm. I, I posted a little bit about my dive brakes for my E16 Paul and thinking maybe you could photo S these and then form them later. Right. It was, inter- it was an interesting modeling challenge, really, but... To be honest, to render it th- properly in scale, 3D printing was hands down probably the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I th- there's always going to be the craftsmen among us who they, they might use 3D printing to some degree, but to 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 completely blow out a, a model and then paint it after the fact. You know, Chris talked about that in our last episode. Actually, the the concept of modelers who would buy a completely finished model just so they could paint it and weather, paint and weather it. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I, we'll, I guess we'll all see the future together. I, I guess we, <laughs> I guess we will. Um, you know, another, another angle on all this is, or another topic to discuss subtopic to discuss would be, 
all the products. Oh my God. All the aftermarket, oh, all, yeah. all the finish, all the finishing products. You know, I, I do it. I, I bring it up often in our uh, favorites and yawns, a, a particular aftermarket paint and paint and weathering effect company has re- just released something else. And God, it just goes on and on and on. And then there, there's two or three companies doing the same thing, fighting for the same market share of the same weathering effect or their particular take on it. And it's, I just want them to stop. <laughs> it, it's gold. It's the golden age for sure. Yes. We, we've got, com- we've got companies fighting over market share on crap. We didn't even care about 10 years ago. Yep. And uh, I mean, if the hobby's dying, I sure don't see the illness right now. Now, again, talk about 3D printing and, you know, who knows how that develops in the future. But certainly right now, the hobby isn't dying. If anything, it's flourishing, especially during this pandemic. If you go talk to hobby retailers and distributors, they're seeing christmas style business in june and july and august because people have turned to that as as part of their release distraction or whatever from covid well that'll that'll probably come around eventually right we'll get out of this and we'll get back into the old internet versus brick and mortar but that's 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 a that's a business strategy argument. That's not a hobby dying argument, in my opinion. Right. No, um, I agree. That That's an expense versus profit kind of model, right? Yeah. So, uh, but you're, but you're right. They're, they're doing great business. And a part of that new bit, part of that increased business is new business. Right. Uh, there was the article, I can't remember where it was about Airfix in the, in the, the Spitfire kits. Right. It was either in the New York Times or over in the Lon- the Times of London. It was in a major newspaper. Maybe it's the Wall Street Journal. Which is it's pretty amazing. You know, and some of those people get hooked, right? Yep. Yep. Some, some percentage some, of them. Some of those will go will go back to whatever they were doing before the pandemic and they're like, well, that's kind of fun, but they won't go back to it. But some of those people who have a either a penchant for history in general or, or whatever, or like doing things with their hands will, uh, latch onto that and they'll, they'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I think that's, I think that's correct. I, uh, I don't see the hobby dying anytime soon, at least soon enough that it's going to matter to people of your and my generation. Well, let's, let's circle back and talk about the cost again. Um, I, I, I agree with you. Well, to go back to the to what kicked this off, the, the the thirty dollar assembly jig or modeling jig being a deterrent to the hobby is that's that's just stupid in my yeah. opinion. That's that's not that much because yeah. c- considering the va- considering the value add of such such a tool like that, which we talked about last episode, episode nineteen, uh, that's just not that's crazy. That's stupid yeah. talk. I agree. Now. Kit prices. That's that 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 one's a little different. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not an economist. I'm not an accountant. I don't I don't pretend to understand the whole inflation model. But you know, in in 
United States anyway, inflation over the last 10, even 20 years has not been huge. Right. So I'm not sure what to make of that versus kit prices. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a dynamic between the importers and the distributors in the new country and tariffs and all that. Um, most of the kit prices, I think, in the United States anyway, are not terrible. Some are better than others, obviously. Uh, the exception would be, currently, would be Dragon. Now, I'm talking completely from the armor modeler point of view. I, I don't even know what Dragon's done for aircraft modelers in the last 10 years at all. Not much. Probably not much. Probably not much. But... You know, these kits are approaching $85, you know? Yeah. Now, that's a lot. That That is a lot. I will say that it better be good at $85 or the, the for my personal project, the value add ought to get me pretty far down the road for whatever I'm trying to model for that kind of money. Because get out there, look at other people's YouTube videos, et cetera. It, Dragon, they got their warts, right? Right. It's usually it's usually the instructions, but those kits are getting kind of expensive, and the, the competition for Dragon is 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 getting pretty severe. There are you know, Tamiya's Tamiya, but you've got all these Chinese based, Hong Kong based companies coming out now that are giving them a serious run for their money and their price point is, is better in general. Yeah. What do you yeah. think? Well, I think that, okay, looking at the big picture regarding price, there are always expensive kits. Okay. In the grand scheme of things, we can all go find kits that are either flat out expensive or overpriced for what they are. But in the in the scheme of things, there are still plenty of reasonably priced model kits. Airfix seventy second scale and forty eight scale aircraft kits are some of the most reasonably priced models out there. And even somebody who is, you know, a, a little bit cash strapped, or somebody who 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 has to watch every dime can still can still get a value out of them. Uh, so I'm not so sure that I think maybe the price spectrum has widened. You know, and at the top end, you're seeing kits that are more expensive, uh, either because they're overpriced or high quality, like Wingnut's Wings kits were. Um, but overall in the spectrum, I don't think price is at all a real determinant in the hobby today. I think I would agree with that. Certainly not for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not for me either. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, I won't. so, uh, Mike, do you have any, uh, shout outs for this episode? I sure do. Uh, Mr. Mark Box again. Oh, frequent contributor. Frequent contributor. Mark got my cheesy song reference from the last episode. So, uh, <laughs> yes. The song I was referencing was Private Idaho by the B-52s, an American new wave band that uh, 
came out of Athens, Georgia in the late seventies. So yeah, well done, Mark. In addition to that, he was uh, lamenting tonight, actually, the night we were recording, that uh, we haven't been too active on the Facebook page this week, and we haven't because we've both been freaking buried with a bunch of other crap. Yeah. Unfortunately. I'd, I'd rather be active on the Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice of him to notice. It's nice of him to notice, and... As a part of his noticing, he sent us a YouTube link to uh, Muddy Waters. Got my mojo working. <laughs> so I'll have, to, I'll have to get that a listen later. It so that's my shout great. out. Sounds Mark, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for caring. Thank you for uh, for giving us all the support you do. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, my shout out is somebody you've actually mentioned. Um, uh, Mark, the proprietor of Starfighter Decals. Uh, as you mentioned previously, he makes quality products, uh, both decals, resin, photo etch. Um, he's released a sheet of, uh, B25 decals for the new Airfix kit, including a, a couple of Doolittle Raiders. There's a particular Doolittle Raider that I want to do. It had a, uh, a crewman who was from Kentucky. It was plane number 10. Uh, the tail number is 2250. Unfortunately, that little tail number, that particular tail number is not available on any of the sets of decals that are, that are out there. I can get all the other numbers, but I can't get the five. Well, I shot Mark an email and said, hey, I'm, I'm wanting to model this airplane. I have every number but the five in this style, do you know where I could, a sheet that I could pick up that five and use it uh, to make the, to make the tail number I need. And uh, after exchanging an email or two back and forth, Mark was able to provide me with uh, the info I needed to solve my, uh, my problem. So sometime in the near future, hopefully we'll see an Airfix B-25 Doolittle Raider. So that's my shout out for the episode. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate all of the assistance. All right. Well, that's episode 20, folks. As they say, Dave, so many kits. So little time. See you next time.